Ron and Anian. I absolutely guarantee you, cars are not going to get simpler from this moment on. They're going to get much more difficult. I dug my key into the side of this pretty little souped-up four-wheel drive. Called my name into his leather seats. I took a Louisville slugger to both headlights. Last a home and all four tires. Maybe next time I'll think before he eats The Car Doctor. I'm amazed that a body shop would release a vehicle with an airbag light on. If you're getting to another accident and that airbag light's on, the airbag system doesn't work. You're in a dangerous vehicle at that point. Welcome to the radio home of Ron and Anian, the car doctor. Since 1991, this is where car owners the world over turn to for their definitive opinion on automotive repair. If your mechanic's giving you a busy signal, pick up the phone and call in. The garage doors are open. But I am here to take your calls at 855-560-9900. And now, here's Ronnie. Again? Hey, why not? Here again, Ron and Annie and the Car Doctor, 855-560-9900. Yeah, I get up each and every week. Look at this. Here we are on radio again. How does this keep on happening? I'm not sure. I fell asleep this week before the show, and they wheeled me into the booth, and they said the regular guy didn't show up. It's your turn or something like that. I'm not quite sure what the heck happened. Anyway, this is the Car Doctor. I am Ron and Annie, and I am here to answer your car questions and help you solve whatever it is you're looking for. There's more information about this radio show at cardoctorshow.com with links to various websites about podcasting and all sorts of different ways to take it, automated and otherwise. Tune in, iHeart, iTunes Radio. Need me during the week. It's Ron at cardoctorshow.com. I understand we're up on Google Play now. You can get podcasts of the radio show there and just roll along with us. And uh, we enjoy each of you listening each and every week and uh, being with us and being part of the Car Doctor Nation. I think auto repair is, is, is like a needle in a haystack sometimes. You're, you're looking for just that. And it's always that least little part that you think of when you've exhausted all other solutions. It's sort of like that old saying, it's always the last place you look for it. That's where you find it. Auto repair is always the last thing you check. That's what you figure out is bad. And sometimes it's very tiny. It's a very small, inherent component part that you may overlook because you just take it for granted. Your brain plays small tricks on you. Happened to me twice this week. One was a 2006 Ford F-150 pickup truck with a bad air conditioning compressor. The AC compressor was bad. It had an eighth-inch gap, almost, almost a, a, I'm sorry, a quarter of an inch gap. Uh, for down by, down at the clutch, and it just wouldn't pull in and engage, and we put a compressor in it, and all was well. It came back three days later, and the compressor was short-cycling like it was low on refrigerant. And I ran through the system. Naturally, new means never, ever work in my world because I don't believe anything is good, even if it's new. It has to be checked out and verified, and the compressor was fine. There were no leaks in the system. But I noticed that the high-side service cap was missing, and that's not like me. That's just not something I'm pretty automated in that I will sit there and, you know, consistently uh, there's a there's a methodology I'll always follow and it just becomes second nature at this point in the game, 40-something years of auto repair. Where'd the high side pressure cap go? And more importantly, where'd the refrigerant go? And in looking at it, there was a little bit left in the system, a little bit of soapy water up on top of that service cap and it was bubbling. Aha! The nickel part, well, not really the nickel part, the $11.82 Schrader valve inside the service port was sticking, and probably because the original air conditioning system, the original complaint took the customer two years to bring in. They they had a problem for the past two years. They've been trying to fight it, 
and finally they said no more, no mas, right? A little Duran uh, boxing match there. Wasn't that the no mas, no mas? They just couldn't take it and uh, decided to fix the air conditioning. And I did, but I guess the valve was stuck, and I charged the system, and it just never reseated and sealed itself again. As for the service cap, well, I found it. It had popped off the service port, and it was laying in the frame rail. So when the pressure built up enough under the cap, it went boing, and off it went. And always that needle in a haystack, the service cap was actually the clue that tipped me off that said maybe something's leaking, building up pressure. The second was at home. Walked out of the house the other morning, and this story may have deja vu for a long. if you're a long-term car doctor listener. My daughter's current car, she was, remember years ago she was driving the Volvo? Well, the Volvo kid's driving a Toyota. And I noticed that her left front tire was almost flat. Now, I had just changed the oil and serviced it the week before. And I walked him back in and I said, hey, listen, bring your car down to the shop later today. I want to look at that left front tire. I want to see what's going on there. It's, it's, it's almost on the ground. You've got enough there to get to the shop, but not much further. And she showed up and... Yeah, it only had about 18 pounds of air in it. And when I looked, tanked the tire, went through looking for rim leaks, went through looking for any small crazy puncture, took the tire apart, ran my hand around the inside, did a visual over every square inch of that tire, found nothing wrong. The service cap, or the valve stem, right, the valve stem must have been leaking. I put a new valve stem in it, and four days later, tire's holding air. It's like needles and pins and pins and needles and looking for that needle in a haystack sometimes. You've always got to look down to the least smallest detail and go through everything and never assume that, well, the problem must be fairy dust sprinkled somewhere and it's caused it to happen with no rhyme or reason. Everything that happens inside of an automobile under the hood, until the driver gets in and starts driving, there's a great deal of logic that occurs inside of an automobile. And it's always something mechanical and it's always something... High school science basics. It's always right there staring at you. You've got to be the detective and find it. Hello and welcome. Ron and Annie and the Car Doctor here, 855-560-9900. As I said before and so many times these past 25 years, I am here to help you solve your automotive problem. Whatever that dilemma is, we're going to kick the garage doors open right now and get going because the phone lines are already backed up. They're looking for us early. Let's get over and talk to Tom again, La Crosse, Wisconsin, a return call from last week. The Ford F98 F-150 with vacuum leak, vacuum leak problem. Yeah, Tom, what's going on this week? Well, I love your program, Ron. I appreciate you taking my call. Thank you, sir. Here, here is a scenario. I uh, put a little extra vacuum on it with the engine off, and I find that my vacuum control switch valve on this 98 Ford 4.2 actually allows vacuum to leak into that valve. And so my first question is, is that normal for that to allow air to suck in there. Re- refresh my memory, Tom. What was wrong with this truck again? I remember it had a vacuum leak of it, some kind. I remember the specifics. It, well, it does have a vacuum leak, and it's kind of unique. It um, and what what I, how I determined it was leaking is that going down the road, cruise on, nice and level, air conditioner running, everything just fine until all of a sudden the engine has to work a little harder. And then apparently, I'm guessing the vacuum drops and it drops out my ventilation from the AC. Uh, and that's how I initially noticed it. But after that, I did some more research and I realized I'm losing vacuum and losing it pretty quickly. Okay, so, so it's, it's not holding it at the reserve tank. 
That's correct. So did you, I think we had a conversation about the red vacuum line or the vacuum line, with if it's a, if it's a black rubber line, it's going to have a red trace on it, a red stripe on it. Right. If you trace that out going into the dash, if you plug that off and put a vacuum pump on that and you block it off wherever the source is at the engine, although there's a check valve there and it shouldn't matter, does it hold vacuum? And the answer is no. And what what I've determined is uh, it is definitely letting air in at what I've determined is called a vacuum control switch valve. And it is a little valve right there not too far off the manifold that I assume has something to do with the EGR. But but that thing is actually allowing vacuum to suck into it. If okay, I, so if you if, if I, you if disconnect I, that line, if you disconnect that valve and put your finger over it, block that off, the system holds vacuum up to that point. <laughs> Ron, that would be an excellent test, and I didn't uh, think to do that, but I wish I had. Uh, I just made the assumption that i got to find out if it possible... Uh, uh, if that, that the vacuum could actually leak in through that because I know the vacuum system ideally uh, doesn't actually le- uh, let any air in, but I thought maybe this device is supposed to or something, or maybe it's a vacuum nope. regulatory type thing. I wasn't sure. The, the, the only thing that can be from my seat without looking at it up close is a vacuum check valve. It's going to allow vacuum to be pulled so that the engine manifold vacuum pulls through the system but doesn't allow it to bleed off quickly, all right? It's either a delay or a restriction that doesn't allow it to bleed off quickly. So when you're in that type of situation, uphill, under load, foot to the floor, it doesn't lose manifold vacuum right away and take away from the vacuum reserve tank, all right? Okay. Or, or it's a check valve in the event of engine backfire that it won't allow a backfire to occur inside the hoses. It's a safety device for the system. What I would tell you to do is look on that valve. There should be a Ford part number. F, what year is this truck? A 98, so it'll be F8ZF something, uh, dash for Apple Bob Baker or something like that. Identify the part that way to figure out what it is should you have to order another one. Okay, and I actually do have a number. It is a PA, like Paul Apple, 66, and after that is a GF33. No, that's not a Ford number. We're looking for uh, that's okay. that's that might be a vendor number, but when you go down okay. to the Ford store, take the part down to the Ford store, see if they can identify it. It will have, it should have a Ford part number on it somewhere. I think you're looking at a molding number. I've seen that PA number before too. It's also sometimes okay. a PB, but um, you know you're looking for that. If you take that out of the system and run direct vacuum, does the system still lose its charge going uphill? That is an excellent thing to try, and that's what I'm going to do, Ron. So okay. I appreciate your help. But that's some type of a restrictor. Don't leave it out on a permanent basis. <laughs> okay. All right, Tom? All right. Well, thank thank you very much, Ron. You're very welcome. I'm Ron and Annie in the car, Doctor, 855-560-9900. We'll be back right after this. There's night in Smoke like water runs inside Still out of trees to pity Every living thing that's died Ron and Anian. Hey, welcome back. Ron and Anian, the car doctor here. Let's uh, cruise on over and talk to Clyde Lewiston, Idaho. 
Clyde, welcome back. What the details here? 91 Jetta 1.8 with a uh, surging idle last week. What sort of results do we have? Yeah, well, you told me to do three things. You said check the voltage between pins three and four on the MAF should be five volts. That's correct. Okay. You told me to check the voltage on pin two of the MAF with the ignition on and the engine off and then with the engine running. With the engine off, you got about a quarter of a volt, 0.28. With it running, you get from 1.5 to 1.7. Okay, wait, 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 back up there. The pin two, blue-red... Yeah. The voltage there with the engine off was what? 0.28 volts. No, should be 1.2 to 1.5. Well, uh, that that's what we found. Yeah, so that's wrong. Um, that is in all likelihood a bad mass airflow sensor. Now, you said you replaced I, the mass airflow, didn't you? I no, I hadn't last week, but this week I had another one. I stuck it in there and got the same results. Mm. Pin 2 is a blue-red. That's right. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have to tell you, send me the VIN on this car. Send me the 17-digit VIN off this car, mm-hmm. Clyde. Something the wiring diagram doesn't match up then. But, you know, pin mm-hmm. pin 2 is always 1.2 to a uh, volt and a half. Because then you're going to tell me you checked the O2 sensor signal and it was okay, right? Well, let's see. Last week I told you I'd done the torque test on that, and it seemed like it was all right. It varied in the the, the range it's supposed to. Okay. I also checked that the, the CTS was wired correctly to the pin t- to the ECU, and that's correct. Okay. I swapped out the CTS. The fact that we've got no a dis- the fact that we've got a discrepancy on that one wire at the mass air, uh, something's wrong. Either either, and my notes are pretty accurate. Um, it's been a while since I looked at a ninety-one, but uh, they're tried and true. I've got to think my notes are right, and something's wrong with the test on your end. Uh, that I'm well, that to, may that, be. I'm looking yeah. at the Bentley manual now, and it shows. Pin 2, the blue-red, going to pin 21 of the ECU. Right. And that's that's correct, because right. I checked it. Yeah, that should... Always... I'll get you the VIN. Yeah, get me the VIN. I want, I want to match this up by VIN. The other thing I was thinking about with this car is, and I will don't want to make any assumptions, throttle plate is clean? Yeah. Okay. And the throttle switch works? Oh yeah, the throttle switch is closed when uh, when it's supposed to be. Okay. When the when the throttle's closed, the switch is in doing what it's supposed to do. Right. Right. And okay. As soon as you're off 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 closed throttle, the switch goes the other way. Right. Okay. Send me um send me the send me the VIN of this car, Claude. Ron at Car Doctor Show. Ron at Car Doctor Show dot com. Write your results down. Stick them in the email. I'll get back to you midweek. All right. Very good. All right, brother. Thank you for your help, Ron. You're welcome. Hang in there. We'll fix it. No worries. Bye. All right, let's get over to Dan, Middletown, Connecticut. Dan, what do you got here? Hi, what how can you I doing? do? Yes, sir. How can I help? Hello? Yes, sir. Hey, Dan, Ron and Annie in the car, yeah. doctor. How can I help? Oh, um, I have a 2008 Dodge Avenger RT 3.5 liter. Right. And uh, I bought it uh, June 6th of this year. It has uh, 50,000 miles on it. And um, 
the problem started six weeks after I bought it. Um, I got all I got engine lights on. I got the uh, check engine light, the ABS light, the engine oil pressure light on, and um, then I I wrote down all the codes, and there were seventeen codes. Okay. And then I cleared them, and then and then I get only two engine lights on, and it's sometimes it won't start in park, but it will start in neutral. So when I get it started, I get the the only engine lights that I get are the are the oil pressure light and the check engine light. Well, yeah, I'm not and, so I'm I'm not so much worried about the lights. The 17 codes have any of those returned? Uh, no. Uh, well, yeah, they're they not all of them. Most of them are. They're pretty insignificant. There's no no misfire codes. I have the de- the descriptions of all of them. Well, and I'm not I'm not thinking you're going to have a misfire fault. I'm thinking more what you're going to tell me is somewhere here, we've got a communication fault. Are you, are you using a handheld OBD2 scanner? Yes. Okay. A problem like this, my advice is uh, the only thing that's really going to work is using a manufacturer specific model, something that can go in your make model because I want to go and look for communication fault between modules. It almost Oh no, I had okay. I did have somebody have one where you can put in the the year and make, yeah. Okay. Um so, no communication fault codes here? Yeah, there is. There is. There's a high speed can communication bus code. Right. Right. And there's a high speed can communication bus performance code. And there's a lost communication with body control module. There it is. Yep. That's yeah. Yeah. That's that's the code. Those are the codes you want to pay attention to. That's what you want to go and chase. Because what it sounds like, it sounds like something is losing communication ability with the other, and consequently it's setting a, a slew of false codes, sending you down the merry path. What I would tell you to do is disconnect the battery cables, jumper them yeah. together, all right. Did you touch the two battery cables together for 30, 30 to 60 seconds? No, I didn't. Okay. Bleed everything out. Make sure the cables, when they go back on, are clean and tight. Start it back up. See what codes come back. And then let's begin that conversation next week. What is that? To try and reboot the computer yeah. system? Yeah. Let's try and reboot the computer system. Even if you left it tied together like that for five minutes, it'll help that much more. But that's where we're going to go. And then call me back next week. Give me some codes, and we'll talk about it then. All right, sir, I'm Ron Anini in the car, Doctor. We're back right after this. Hey, Ron Anini in the car, Doctor. Rolling along this hour at 855-560-9900. Give us a call. Let's fix your problem. Let's get together and talk about it. Let's get on over and talk about it with Gordon down in Lakeland, Florida, 93 Dodge Caravan. Gordon, welcome to the car, Doctor, sir. How can I help? Hey, thank you, Ron, for taking my call. You're welcome. Anyhow, um, my situation is kind of odd. It, um, the back windshield wiper, it has a back windshield wiper. It um, occasionally will try to come on, and there's nothing I can do to turn it off. I twist all the knobs, and I look all around like a maniac. And when it does try to come on, it acts like it's jammed or something where the motor is pushing against something, but it only does that sometimes. But when it doesn't come on, I can't do anything to turn it on. I mean, it turns on when it wants to, and it turns off when it wants to. 
maybe maybe there was something that uh, shorted the switch on and it, and it burned it out. I'm just guessing. Well, there's just, there's I don't know what to do. There's there's three components here. There's there's the rear wiper motor. Okay. There's the rear wiper switch. Right. And then and here's the biggie. There's the rear wiper control module inside the liftgate door. Okay. All right. The electronic module was prone to failure and to do erratic things just like you're describing. Okay. Um, w- what I would tell you to do, depending on how serious you are about fixing it, I'm not saying you're not, um, yeah. the first question I would do is I would talk to Chrysler. I would find out what's available, switch, module, motor. I'm thinking the motor's still available. Uh, I'm guessing that the module no longer is, and you may be able to find the switch, but that's a question unto itself. My point is that if that module is not available, to go through the trouble of pulling the back panel down and having access to that module should it start to wipe and do it, you know, do its mystery ghost dance again, I would want to be there with a voltmeter looking at the pinned requests going on in and out of that module. You're down well, to you're down to pin testing. Question. I took electronic college and I got straight A's. Go ahead. If I can find a motor and a wiper that work, I'm thinking of maybe just if I get time and money, just straight wiring it and running a switch up to running the switch from the battery to wherever, and um, just wiring it to come on and off when I want. Like, yeah. um, why I do, not? I'm, yeah, why not? That? Yeah, sure. Why not? Just bypass the module if that's what you want to do. Now you got to now you got to incorporate a washer circuit, and you got to be careful because at the rate you're going, you're going to rewire half the car. So it's it's never okay. it's it's never that simple. But if I if I was a betting man, Gordon. I would tell you to very closely, if you've got the electronics degree, I would just take a very close look at that wiper module inside the liftgate because that's probably where the fault is. They were pro- is it just, they, they just were... a relay? Is that all it is? No, it's a printed circuit board. Oh, it's got a little electronics in it. Yep. Uh, um, sometimes it's simpler to just go out and get a new one. And sometimes getting to the wires, is. I rewired the inside lighting, the interior lights. And that, that part was easy, but getting to the wires and putting them in was a real headache. Well, yeah, and like I said, if that module if that module is still available, that's a uh, that's a whole other question unto itself. Gordon, I wish you luck. If you uh, need any more help, you know where to find us. And if you do find that module and uh, it solves us, let us know that, too. We're always here for you down there in Lakeland, Florida. Let's go over and talk to Joe Nanuet, New York. Joe, welcome to the car doctor, sir. How can I help? Yes, Ron. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm anxious to get your answer. Go ahead. On a 2000... To Mercury Sable. Right. Uh, left front strut and spring assembly. The spring broke and went through the tire, and I would try to replace it by parts, and I can't seem to locate the right length strut assembly. What do you mean you can't locate the right length strut assembly? Otherwise, I go to a, a parts dealer. Right. Well, I ordered them from A1 first. My son ordered them for me. Right. They came, and they measured like 23 inches. You're, so talk- you you're, ta- have- you're talking about height. Right. Okay. From the fender to the bottom. So I sent them back, and I checked around and around, and the best I could come up with is 21, which is still tough to get in. But the specs on the Monroe say it's 19. But I can't go by that. I come to the conclusion that every one, every manufacturer, is roughly when you're when 21. you're when you're measuring the height, Joe. 
Yes. You're measuring from what to what? You're measuring from the tip of the strut to the bottom of the strut? Uh, no, I'm measuring from the flange with the three studs that go up to the fender. Right. To the bottom of the strut. Okay. Now, my problem is I have different conflicting things how to get it in. You pry it down as much as you can. You can't quite get enough. They say this uh, connect subassembly, which I really don't want to do because the engine, everything is hooked to that. So your problem is actually getting the strut in the car. It's not the height because right. you're, you're trying to clear it over the knuckle. Right. Right, because it's a split knuckle. There's a pinch bolt back there, and you have to get it down really low right. in order to gain clearance. Right. Right. In other words, the A-arm bottoms out, and it's as far as it can go, I'm still like two inches away. Right. Then I'm going to tell you that as long as the struts are proper by application, it's it's not the strut manufacturer. It's your method of installation. And yeah, you might you might have to unbolt that lower control arm and wedge it in, and then bolt it in before you bolt the rest of the strut in. I have fought with those, but now understand, I'm doing it on a lift four feet in the air. Yeah, well, of course. And, and I've got a three foot pry bar at the shop. I can make anything fit. Well, I've got a six foot pry bar, but I can't, <laughs> I can't bend the metal. But you're on the ground. Um, here's here's the question I've got. If you take your if you take your old strut out. And line it up with the new strut. Are the physical dimensions the same? Is the spatiality the same between between where that pinch bolt sits and the bottom of the strut, the lower perch, and the top strut mount? And keep in mind, your strut's also 15 years old, and it's been beat up by New York Road, so it's going to be a little bit more compressed in certain areas. I'm not saying its overall length is going to be different, but it's going to be a little bit more compressed in uh, spring area and then in the area between the seat and the top of the strut. Right. I've never seen this or had this as a problem. So I've got to think it's something in the way you're either measuring or something in the way you're installing. Trust me, if 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 strut manufacturers were making them all the wrong length, and again, you wanted my answer, I'm going to give it to you. If strut manufacturers were making them all the wrong length, there's more than a few 2002 Mercury Sable and Ford Taurus, same car, out on the road. Right. I, I would have been getting a lot more phone calls a lot sooner than this. It's it's 15 years ago. I so, understand. You know, okay. so, so you've got to take a look at how you're installing that. I will tell you that when I do this, I always bolt the strut in at the top first, which I'm sure you're doing. Right. All right. And then I will get it down low, line it up, and sort of cantilever the two together and it just pops in well and my problem is i could bend the knuckle over until it hits the universal joint on an axle and i'm down as far as i can and i'm still like two inches so something else has. are you are you unbolting the ball joint from the lower portion of the knuckle i haven't done that yet but i assume that that would help. Yeah, that would help. That's what you're fighting. Because the distance from the top of the stud of the ball joint to the top of the knuckle is two inches, two and a half inches, right. vers versus the four inches you're trying to compress it to clear the strut back into the knuckle. Right. That's the yeah. difference. So it's not that the strut is too long, the distance is too long, and you've got to offset it going the other way. The, 
the 21 inch one is probably the right distance, but the 23 would never fit. Well, and again, I, I know that I'm not going to argue. Yeah, that. no, no, I'd have to see. I'd have to line them up to see how they, you know, what's what's one version of what's you know what are the distances between the the critical points. Uh, right. Keep keep in mind too that you know you got to be careful with some of the aftermarket struts. A lot of them are Chinese junk, so you want to make sure of what you're buying. Well, in, in, and Monroe. Well, Monroe's supposed to be the best. Well, Monroe's a good strut really. as long as as long as it's Monroe. Um, I would look at Monroe. I would take a look at. Um, I would talk to the. I would see what Motorcraft has just for giggles, and just I've just been to Ford. Yeah, what they say. They're useless. <laughs> well, they tell me they've got eleven different springs, and they don't know what spring to get me. And then I say, well, what about the well the re- assembly? The reason they the reason they tell you there's eleven different springs, Joe is because the car probably had options for suspension and different spring rate. There's a tag on that old spring that if you gave them that tag number... I know, it should be exactly right. Right, it would give you... Now, the cost is going to be more, but if you're looking to maintain the ride quality, then, you know, Ford's the way to go. If not, use Monroe, but unbolt the bottom portion of the knuckle and that'll do it for you. 855-560-9900. The Car Doctor's coming back right after this. Go, Ron and Annie and the Car Doctor on the go this hour at 855-560-9900. It's got to be, it's like a full moon show. There must be a full moon coming up. I've come to that conclusion. Just uh, what a rough hour. Holy cow. Let's uh, let's motor on down the road here. Let's go talk to Richard Milford, Connecticut. See what's going on. 2012 Toyota Highlander. Richard, how can I help you, sir? Ron and Annie and at your service. Hey, Ron. How you doing? Good. What's going on? Hey, got this 2012 Highlander 35 V6 um, coming back from a, you know, away for the weekend. About 10 miles from home, the check engine light comes on. I pulled the code on it. It was a P0015. Um, shortly after pulling the code, the light went off. It's been off ever since. Um, the only other thing was the uh, traction control system light came on saying the traction was off, along with the check engine light, and that went off. When yeah. the light went off, it hasn't yeah, been on since. And, and the reason they do that, Toyota, like a lot of the manufacturers, if it sets an engine fault code, they'll limit operation of vehicle stability control, uh, traction control systems, ABS, whatever your name du jour is. So that that's normal. Fix the PCM fault and you'll in all likelihood cause the uh, VSC or the ABS or any other lights to go off as well. So the first focus becomes check engine. They always do that. They limit uh, operation of other hang-on systems, if you will, based on what the uh, PCM is reporting. And you had a what fault code? It was a P0015. Okay, so... So P0015 is the variable valve timing solenoid um, is is creating a problem. It's saying that the camshaft position is over-retarded on bank one. So what they're doing is they're, back in the old days when we were hot rodders, we used to take the front of the engine apart and we would offset the keyway to advance or retard the cam mechanically, depending upon, you know, the racing application. Now they're Now mm-hmm. they're doing that mechanically, I'm sorry, electronically. So what they're saying is they've commanded it to go back, to go to a position, and then they're not seeing it 
respond. They're not seeing it hit that position. So that's what VVT is, variable valve timing. It, 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 it's constantly changing based on engine load demand and so forth. So what's common, they do have issues with the actual, uh, with the actual actuator itself. There's a bulletin out from Toyota. You got a pen handy? Uh, take a yep, look. Take, take a look at Toyota Technical Bulletin 0094-09. It's been out there since March of 2009, and it references uh, P0014, 15, 24, 25, and a couple others. And they talk about if you've got that light on and or a ticking noise out of the engine on an intermittent basis, they they take you through a test procedure of how to determine it. Um, I've had a few of these go through the shop myself. Most of them have been under extended warranty. They're going back to the dealer and getting done. Um, my feeling, and I can't prove this by any scientific method yet, but what I've noticed is it seems like it's happening more on the vehicles that are following, watch this, the manufacturer's oil change interval. Like, yeah. you know, the, yeah. the, the 5, the 6, the 10,000-mile interval that you never need to change the oil and the particulate builds up over time. Typically, it happens in the forty to 50,000-mile range, which makes you kind of snap your neck because you go, really, 50,000 miles, and already I've got a problem? Uh, how many miles? That's where I'm at, 50, uh, yeah, 50,000. There yeah, there you go. Um, what's your oil change interval, just out of curiosity? Well, they, they call for 10. Right. Um, I do I do 5 or 6. Right, yeah. With synthetic. With synthetic. Try doing 4. And, uh, yeah. you know, if the light comes back on, I would tell you I would tell you to shorten the oil change interval up a little bit. I'd be curious to see what the inside of the engine looks like, how clean it is. It could just be a bad actuator, too. But get your hands on that TSB, and you probably need that actuator. It's probably going to happen again, and it'll lead you down to that diagnostic point. All right, sir? I mean, should I wait for them for the light to come back on, or should I go see Toyota first? Well, I'd, I'd, I'd probably go see Toyota first and explain it to them. Of course, if the light's not on, there's not much they're going to be able to do for you. They're going to take you through that. You know, if the light's not there, we can't do anything. But it, it doesn't hurt to get it on record. Just be careful. They'll probably end up charging you for you unless you have extended warranty since the light's not on at this particular moment. If you need anything else, Rich, you know where to find me, 855-560-9900. Got to go. I'm up against the clock. And uh, I'll talk to you again. I'm Ron Anini in the Car Doctor. Back right after this. Why this car is automatic? It's systematic. It's Hydromatic. Why it's a greased lightning? Welcome back. We're on Anini, the Car Doctor. Here as we wind things down this hour. There's another hour of Car Doctor and to come, by the way, if you're on an affiliate that takes both hours. A quick comment from Tony Emilio, retired police, retired Chicago police officer. Uh, Anthony Emilio sent me an article about self-driving cars. He says, Ron, FYI about self-driving cars, your comments on the subject are spot on. Say hi to the boys. Stay safe. Tony Emilio, Park Ridge, Illinois. We appreciate that, Tony. Um, The article goes on. This is out of the Chicago Tribune on Sunday, 731. It talks about self-driving cars, and the risk to self-driving cars is really you. That's the whole point of the story, the driver. The human brain, the article states, continually seeks stimulation. If the mind isn't engaged, it will wander until it finds something more interesting to think about. The more reliable the system, the more more likely it is that attention will wane. Automakers are in the process of adding increasingly automated systems that effectively drive cars in some or most circumstances but still require the driver as a back 
backup in case the vehicle encounters a situation unanticipated by its engineers. That's kind of scary, right? Technology is going to drag us to the brink of automation, and then we've got to count on the engineer that he didn't fail, that he did his homework, that he didn't have a problem and a software glitch that puts us at peril and risk. And the article then goes on to talk about how someone was unfortunately killed in a self-driving car in a Tesla when they weren't paying attention. They were watching a Harry Potter video of all things. So technology, you got to watch out for it each and every day. I'm Ron Anany in the car, Doctor. The mechanics aren't expensive. They're priceless. See ya.